Hello, fellow teachers, and welcome to Teaching with Power. This is Ben Wilcox, and my goal is to help you to either study or teach the scriptures with more relevancy and power. And this week, we're going to be studying 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 13. So if you're ready, grab your scriptures and your marking pencils. It's time to dig deep. As an icebreaker to start this week out, I begin by relating an inspiring true story of an Olympic athlete that through their dedication and hard work were able to overcome opposition and eventually become champions. So just pick one of your personal favorite stories that resonates with you and share that with your class. And chances are there's going to be some YouTube video that you could possibly show that would help you to relate that story a little more clearly. So some possible suggestions, uh, some personal favorites of mine that uh, that perhaps uh, would inspire you. Uh, Jesse Owens in 1936, the U.S. men's hockey team in 1980, uh, Dan Jansen in speed skating uh, in 1994, Kerry Strug in gymnastics in 1996, Rulon Gardner in wrestling in 2000, or you could just choose any of your favorite Olympic heroes to focus on. Michael Phelps, Usain Bolt, Simone Biles. Just find one you love and talk about how that athlete's hard work and dedication led them to victory. And then transition to the scriptures by inviting your students to open to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, where Paul is going to use the imagery of Olympic athletes to teach us something about Christian discipleship. And if you've ever been inspired by the dedication and strength of talented Olympic athletes, Paul's message here is sure to resonate with you. The Corinthians themselves would have especially appreciated this metaphor. After all, the Olympics were invented in their country, and athletic competitions were often held within the city of Corinth itself. So Paul understood his audience, right? So your task is to figure out what two Olympic sports Paul is referring to in verses 24 and 25. What are they? Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. So what events are they? The first one was easy, wasn't it? It's running. They which run in a race run all. And then the one in verse 25 is just a little more challenging. If your students can't figure it out, point them to the phrase, striveth for the mastery. In what sport do you have athletes striving with each other for control or mastery over the other? The event here would be wrestling. Running and wrestling. Both sports that the Greeks were very, very fond of participating in. Let's explore those images in just a little more depth here. Why are those two particular sports good analogies or metaphors for life and our efforts in returning to God's presence? First, how is life like a race? And if it is like a race, what kind of a running race do you think it's most like? Is it a sprint or a marathon? Or maybe it's hurdles. <laughs> we have quite a few of those to overcome in life, don't we? But for me, I think life is most like a marathon. It's probably the kind of race that Paul's referring to here. Mortality is an endurance sport. And I can really relate to this one because I am a runner. Uh, I ran cross-country in high school, and I still enjoy trail running, and I, and I do it often. I even ran a marathon once. Uh, I'm never going to make that mistake again. Once was enough, but... What does that tell you about life? Winning the race of life is going to require endurance and determination. It's a, it's a key part of the doctrine of Christ. 
endure to the end. It's not just a quick burst of spiritual energy that's needed, but a long, steady, and unwavering effort to live righteously day by day to follow Jesus Christ. And then how is life like a wrestling match? It's a fight, isn't it? A war, like we talked about back in Romans. And who is the enemy that we're wrestling with? The adversary. Or the adversary within. Our own natural man. We, we wrestle with him or her every day. It's going to require some real effort and struggle to overcome those adversaries. All throughout this life, we're going to be wrestling for the mastery, for control over our agency, our will. And with that metaphor clearly in mind, what truths is Paul going to teach us? And, and here you could play a little game called, uh, what does Paul mean? A scripture interpretation challenge. Just give your classes these phrases one by one and let them grapple with those for just a bit. What do they think Paul is getting at here? Starting in verse 24, what do you think he means by, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? I think Paul is saying that in an Olympic race, only one person wins the prize. But that stands in contrast. He's, he's going to draw a contrast between life and, and these Olympic sports as well here. How, how does it stand in contrast to the race of mortality? Anybody can gain the prize in this race. You don't have to cross the finish line first. You just have to cross the finish line. So run that you may obtain. Push forward. Finish the race. Endure to the end. And then our next phrase in verse 25. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Temperate in this case means strict in their training. And isn't that what Olympic athletes have to do and be? Strict in their training? They've got coaches and nutritionists and therapists and sports psychologists to help them in their efforts to become champions. And over the years, I've had many students that were wrestlers. And it never ceased to amaze me what these guys were willing to do to make weight or to train. They'd starve themselves. They'd run in rubber suits so they would sweat more. They'd do weight training for hours. They were so dedicated to their sport that they learned to master their hunger, to master pain, and to master pressure. It's incredible how hard they would work to become their best. In life, we're going to need that same temperance to, to win our wrestle with the natural man. We too are going to need to be strict in our training if we ever wish to overcome. And then here's where Paul makes his most important point. He says the next phrase, Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. What does Paul mean by that? I think he's saying, look at how hard these athletes work, the pain they put themselves through, the sacrifices they make. For what? A trophy? A ribbon? A piece of metal around their neck? A championship ring? And for the Greeks, a crown of laurel leaves. These are all corruptible things. Especially, a crown of laurel leaves would eventually fade and die. But the prize that we're running for, that we're wrestling for, is incorruptible. Something far more valuable and eternal in nature than a gold medal or a ring. We're working for eternal life, for godhood celestial glory. Therefore, if Olympic athletes are willing to work that hard for something corruptible, shouldn't we be willing to work at least as hard to gain an incorruptible prize? Shouldn't we approach our eternal salvation with the same level 
of temperance or strict training, dedication, sacrifice, commitment, as they do. And that's what Paul's going to end with, his statement of dedication to his training, to his finish line. I love this so much. This is so great. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. So Paul's saying, I run this race of life not with uncertainty. I know my destination. I know my goal. I know my purpose, eternal life. And I fight and I wrestle, but not like somebody just beating the air, just throwing wild punches out into space, shadow boxing a pretend opponent. I know who my enemy is. I fight the adversary. I fight my natural man. Which leads naturally into our next verse. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I've preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. So I'm going to strive to keep my natural man under subjection, keep him under control, master him, so that not only can I help others cross the finish line, but I can get across it myself. So our, our overall truth here, if I approach my exaltation with Olympic-level dedication, I'm sure to be victorious in the race and wrestle of life. To liken the scriptures, which picture do you feel best represents your level of spiritual athleticism? And that could be kind of fun. And what one exercise do you most need to add to your spiritual training program? Maybe it's prayer pull-ups, scripture sprints, kindness curls, sacrifice squats. I don't know. I mean, you can have some fun with that, seeing if uh, they can come up with a, a good spiritual exercise. Maybe, maybe it's time for all of us to approach our spirituality with a little more Olympic dedication. Perhaps we can quicken our pace a little, push our spiritual muscles a little harder, wrestle our foe with a little more grit. And if we do, brothers and sisters, the prize that we will receive will be far greater far more valuable, and far more rewarding than a trivial hunk of gold dangling around our necks. So let's run. Let's wrestle. Let's reap the reward. Let's be willing to strive and sacrifice to obtain our incorruptible crown. Moving on. For an icebreaker to this next section, you could do a little sacrament pretest to assess your student's knowledge of the sacrament. See, the sacrament is the one ordinance that we should know the best, right? It's the only one that we do every single week. So let's see if that's true. Let's see how well we know it. And you could just give them this as a handout if you'd like. Have them work through the questions and then correct it together as a class. And I'll go through the answers with you here. So number one, what three promises do we make when we partake of the sacrament? The answer, you got to remember the prayers. I mean, we hear them every week. But in the prayer on the bread, it says that we promise covenant to take upon ourselves the name of Christ, to always remember him, and to keep his commandments. Those are the three. Number two, what is the promise that God makes to us if we keep our sacramental promises? God promises that we will always have his spirit to be with us. Number three, which covenant is the only one mentioned in both the blessing on the bread and the water? No, have you ever noticed that before? The the blessing on the water is shorter than the blessing on the bread. It's because there's only one covenant that's repeated. Which one is it? The answer? To always remember him. Seems to highlight the significance, uh, the importance of that particular promise. Number four. What's the difference between God's promise to us in the prayer on the bread and the prayer on the water? A hint, there's just one word difference in the promise. The answer, the word always 
is omitted in, in the prayer on the water. So in the prayer on the bread, it says that they may always have his spirit to be with them. And then in the blessing on the water, it's only that they may have his spirit to be with them. Now, why is that? I have no idea, right? I've never been able to figure that one out. So if anybody has any thoughts on that, put it in the comments below. I'd love to hear your ideas. Number five, true or false? You can only use bread and water to perform the sacrament. Answer, false. Uh, as it teaches us in Doctrine and Covenants 27 verse 2, for behold, I say unto you that it mattereth not what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink when ye partake of the sacrament. If it so be that ye do it with an eye single to my glory, remembering unto the Father my body which was laid down for you, and my blood which was shed for the remission of sins. Now, now bread and water are the recommended symbols, if we have them available. But in a pinch, <laughs> apple juice and graham crackers could do as well if that's all you had available to you. Uh, number six, true or false, the sacrament is a saving ordinance. Answer, false. Uh, uh, while the sacrament is an ordinance, it's not considered a saving ordinance. Saving ordinances are those that an individual must undertake in order to be saved in the celestial kingdom. And there are five. Baptism, Confirmation, receiving the Melchizedek priesthood for men, endowment, and marriage sealing. You can tell which ordinances are saving because they're the ones that we do in the temple for the dead. If we don't do it for the dead in the temple, then we know that it's not a saving ordinance. Now, that's, that's not to minimize in any way the importance of the sacrament. It's incredibly important. It's absolutely vital for members of the church to access the power of the atonement through the sacrament each week and to renew their covenants. It just doesn't hold the distinction as being an outright essential step to entering the kingdom of God, like baptism is. So if somebody got baptized and they, heaven forbid, died the next day and they never got a chance to partake of the sacrament, that wouldn't need to be done for them vicariously or anything. Uh, the same can't be said uh, a baptism or endowment. Uh, number seven, true or false, church members are required to partake of the sacrament with their right hand. Answer, false. It's suggested, but not required. Here's a quote from Russell M. Nelson. The hand used in partaking of the sacrament would logically be the same hand used in making any other sacred oath. For most of us, that would be the right hand. However, sacramental covenants, and other eternal covenants as well, can be and are made by those who have lost the use of the right hand, or who have no hands at all. Much more important than concern over which hand is used in partaking of the sacrament is that the sacrament be partaken with a deep realization of the atoning sacrifice that the sacrament represents. So it seems by that statement that it's preferable to take the sacrament with your right hand, but not essential. Your attitude is far more important. And then finally, number eight, which of our five senses are utilized in participating in the ordinance of the sacrament? And I really like this one because as a teacher, a rule of thumb is that the more senses you engage in a student, the more memorable what you're teaching is going to be to them. So in the sacrament, we have sight, seeing the emblems under the white sheet, and the priesthood blessing and passing the sacrament. Hearing, we hear the words of the sacramental prayers. Touch, we reach out and touch the bread and pick up the cup of water. And taste, we taste the bread and the water. So there you go. Four of the five senses in one ordinance. God's a tremendously effective teacher, isn't he? Well, Paul understood the significance of the sacrament and added a lot to our understanding of this ordinance. Jesus doesn't teach us a whole lot about it back in the Gospels, but Paul's really going to help us out and, and deepen our comprehension. The truth of the matter is that the sacrament 
has more than one purpose. Paul's actually going to identify four different purposes to the sacrament in 1 Corinthians chapters 10 and 11. So let's see how many purposes you can identify by checking out the following verses. So number one, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 through 17. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Now part of the key to understanding this one is to examine the word communion. Look at footnote 16c. And you're going to see that it suggests the words aid, fellowship, and partnership. The sacrament is something that brings us together as congregations of the church in fellowship, brotherhood, and sisterhood. Verse 17 clearly communicates that idea by reminding us that even though we're, we're many different members in the church, we're all one body as we partake of the bread and the water. So one of the purposes of the sacrament is to unify us. It's a unifier. It's a moment when all members of the ward come together in a common purpose and focus. And we've been frequently reminded that the sacrament is the primary purpose of sacrament meeting. It's meant to be done together. Brings us together as a community of faith. I know that I really felt that when I served as bishop. Um, it, was, it was often during the sacrament when I felt that I would receive the most promptings, inspiration about members in my ward. I'd look over the congregation and sometimes just see a face or a family and, and think, oh, I, need, I need to help those individuals or I should talk to that person. Or I would receive inspiration or help in in callings and who would be a good fit in certain callings that, that that kind of revelation always seemed to come more easily in that setting and i think that's because we were united in a common act of faith and spirit at that time All right next one chapter 11 verse 24 and when he had given thanks he brake it and said take Eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Now, this is the purpose that I think we most commonly associate with the sacrament. The key word is remembrance. Another purpose of the sacrament is to serve as a memorial. We're to remember Christ's sacrifice for us. And I like to ask the question, why? Why does he want us to remember his sacrifice? Is it in the spirit of, hey, you'd better remember me because I suffered an awful lot for you? Or is there something different behind it? And I'll just leave that one for you uh, or for my class. Whenever I've asked that question, I've always received a lot of great insights and answers to that question. Why does God want us to remember his son's sacrifice? Purpose number three, 1126. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do shew the Lord's death till he come. A little bit tougher here. The key word is shew. When I partake of the sacrament, I shew the Lord's death till he come. What does that mean? The footnotes are going to help us again here. Proclaim or announce. We're making a type of statement, a proclamation, an announcement when we partake of the sacrament. Sometimes I like to ask, when was the last time you bore your testimony in sacrament meeting? And I'll usually get answers like, last month, or a year ago, or I never bear my testimony in church. And I'll counter that with, I'm willing to bet that you bore your testimony last week. And they'll say, how? 
Uh, it wasn't even fast Sunday. I refer to this verse. Partaking of the sacrament is a type of testimony, an announcement, a proclamation. When you take that little piece of bread to your lips or that tiny cup of water, you're testifying to God, His Son, and everybody around you, and yourself, I believe in Christ. I know that my Redeemer lives. I bear witness that Jesus triumphed over death and sin. Maybe even sometimes you imagine yourself saying something like that when you partake of the bread and water. So a third purpose of the sacrament is to serve as a testimonial. And then finally, this last one is a bit of an easier one to interpret. Chapter 11, verses 28 and 31. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. The fourth purpose of the sacrament is to serve as a self-examination. We can be judging ourselves at that time. How? The sacrament invites us to reflect on our actions of the previous week. Where did we go wrong? Where did we go right? Where can we improve? Is there anything I need to ask forgiveness for? So yeah, the sacrament should be a time of remembering Christ, but it should also be a time of self-reflection and spiritual development. And I like Paul's thought there in verse 31. If we judge ourselves, we should not be judged. And perhaps that means that if we spend each week of our lives judging ourselves and improving ourselves and examining ourselves, when it comes to the final judgment, maybe God will say to us, you know what? I don't need to judge you. You've been judging yourself weekly your entire life. You're already prepared to enter my kingdom. And so there we have it. Four profound purposes of the sacrament. It's a unifier, a memorial, a testimonial, and a self-examination. And to liken the scriptures, when have you been blessed by one of these four purposes of the sacrament. And I'll share, share one of my own thoughts here. For me, something that's helped me to appreciate the sacrament as a memorial is a primary song that was taught to me many years ago by a dedicated primary chorister called To Think About Jesus. And that song still frequently comes to my mind when I partake of the sacrament. And the words go, it shouldn't be hard to sit very still and think about Jesus, his cross on the hill, and all that he suffered and did for me. It shouldn't be hard to sit quietly. It shouldn't be hard, even though I am small, to think about Jesus, not hard at all. And the mood of that simple little song, the reverent tone in which it's sung, it impressed upon my young mind the principle of solemnity and reverence and awe that should be associated with the sacrament. And it helped me to sense a deep love of the Savior and the magnitude of the sacrifice. It still does to this day. It makes me want to be better for Him. Now, perhaps the risk of observing the sacrament every week is that it can possibly become routine and hollow to us. But if we remember Paul's teachings here on the various purposes of this sacred ordinance, perhaps it can become the most significant spiritual event of our entire week. And so I challenge you, if it has become routine to you, try approaching the sacrament in one of these ways that we talked about today that you haven't thought about before. Or each Sunday, try a different one. Rotate through the four purposes week by week and see if that increases its meaning for you. So one week, approach it as a memorial. And then the next one, as a testimony. 
and the next one a self-examination, and so on. And see if that helps to keep it fresh and significant for you week by week. The sacrament is so much more than just a weekly practice. It's a powerful, multifaceted, and memorable experience that not only renews our covenants, but hopefully renews our spiritual strength every week. Next, for chapter 12, I like to use an object lesson for my icebreaker. This takes a little bit more time to prepare the materials, but I find that this works very well. But what you do is you have a large wrapped present at the front of the room. And for me, since I need a quick way to reset the lesson for each class that I have, uh, I have one of those decorated gift boxes that has a lid. So, so I, I don't have to unwrap presents every time. It looks like this. But I, I have inside that large box four or five smaller gift boxes. Then within one of those gift boxes, I have a set of even smaller gift boxes. So it's kind of set up like one of those Russian nesting dolls. And you could, you could also buy these materials at a craft or a hobby store for, for a minimal expense. But with that big gift displayed, I like to ask a question. What's the best Christmas or birthday gift you've ever received? And have them share their answer to that with a companion or a partner. Our Heavenly Father also loves to give gifts to His children. But rather than sending us electronics or jewelry or toys, He gives us spiritual gifts or abilities to bless us and the church as a whole. In Corinthians chapter 12, Paul's going to teach us some exciting truths about spiritual gifts. And the way we're going to approach this discussion is, is as a study guide. So you could have your students either work alone or together with a partner to discover as many truths about spiritual gifts as they can. So question number one. What is the source of all spiritual gifts? The answer can be found in verses 4 and 11. Now, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit, capitalized. But all these worketh that one and the self-same Spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. So it's that last phrase that holds the key. They're called the gifts of the Spirit because they all get their power from that same source, the Spirit or the Holy Ghost. And at that moment, you point to the large present that you have wrapped at the front and say, let's say that this gift represents the Holy Ghost. And you may even put a little label on the outside of the box that says the Holy Ghost. But within the gift of the Holy Ghost are other smaller gifts that God may give to us. Which leads us to question number two. How many different kinds of gifts are there? The answer lies in the same verse, chapter 12, verse 4. There are diversities of gifts. In other words, there are many different kinds of gifts. In case in point, question number three. What are the names of some of the gifts of the Spirit? Verses 8 through 10 contain some examples. Paul lists a few for us. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. So yeah, many different kinds of gifts. And at this point, I start to pull the smaller gifts that I have wrapped up from inside the large gift. And you could even label some of those with the names of the gifts mentioned by Paul here. And the word of wisdom, that's not referring to the church's law of health, but the gift of wisdom, of being wise. You can have another one labeled the gift of knowledge, the gift of healing, discernment, tongues, interpretation of tongues. 
And then I always like to share the following quotes with that point. From Bruce R. McConkie, Spiritual gifts are endless in number and infinite in variety. Those listed in the revealed word are simply illustrations of the boundless outpouring of divine grace that a gracious God gives those who love and serve him. And from Elder Marvin J. Ashton, Taken at random, let me mention a few gifts that are not always evident or noteworthy, but that are very important. The gift of asking, the gift of listening, the gift of hearing and using a still, small voice, the gift of being able to weep, the gift of avoiding contention, the gift of being agreeable, the gift of avoiding vain repetition, the gift of seeking that which is righteous the gift of not passing judgment, the gift of looking to God for guidance, the gift of being a disciple, the gift of caring for others, the gift of being able to ponder, the gift of offering prayer, the gift of bearing a mighty testimony, and the gift of receiving the Holy Ghost. So, so there's, there's an infinite number of possible gifts that God has to give His children. And isn't that wonderful that we're not all the same, that we're not cookie-cutter disciples? It's, it's apparent as we look at the world around us that God really likes variety and diversity. Look at the landscapes he creates. Look at the animal life. So many different shapes and colors and abilities. You know, some fly, some swim, some crawl, some run. And then look at people. Same thing. Different shapes, sizes, colors, languages, cultures. No two are the same. So when it comes to spiritual gifts, God follows the same principle. People can be gifted in many different ways. So you're unique in the gifts that you can offer the world, your family, and the church. So the next question to consider is, who gets a gift? The answer is in chapter 12, verse 7. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. So the answer, everybody gets a gift. Nobody's left out on this one. You're gifted. No exceptions. There's something that only you have to offer your ward or branch. And though this next illustration isn't necessarily doctrinal, I sometimes picture this principle in the following way. I imagine a large line of spirits in the pre-existence, in the pre-mortal life, waiting for their turn to be born into mortality. And just before they leave, Heavenly Father standing there at the head of the line with a large bag of gifts next to him. And they aren't given out randomly, but each has the recipient's name written in beautiful calligraphy across the top. Each of these gifts has been lovingly prepared and tailored to each specific individual. With the gift in his hand, he hands it to them and says, This is a special, unique gift just for you, from me. Please treasure it. Please respect it. It will bring great blessings to you and others throughout your life. And he carefully hands it to them, and off they go to mortality. I also imagine each of the gifts being wrapped differently and in different shapes and sizes. But everybody gets a gift. And here I sometimes like to add this question as well. Is there a way for you to know for certain what gift or gifts your Heavenly Father has given to you? And there is. Your patriarchal blessing will more often than not tell you what some of your gifts are. It's another reason to get a patriarchal blessing if you haven't gotten one yet. And, and if it doesn't, it doesn't mean that you don't have one. It may be that your Father in Heaven just wants you to work to discover what they are. Question number five. What do you think these verses teach us about spiritual gifts? Verses five through six. And there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. 
Now, what does that mean? I think it means that there are many different manifestations of the spiritual gifts. So you may be given the gift of tongues, but there's lots of different ways the gift of tongues can be manifest. Different ways in which it's administered. Perhaps one is the ability to speak a language that you've never learned before. We saw that with the apostles on the day of Pentecost. But, but is that the only manifestation of that gift? No, no. Perhaps another manifestation is the ability to learn and speak another language with ease and accuracy. Missionaries serving foreign missions are often going to want to seek that gift. But are there others? I think those two are usually the ones that come in mind. I think there could be. And let me illustrate that with a little story, an example. When my father was a teenager, he got his patriarchal blessing, which told him that he had the gift of tongues. So in high school, he decided to take a foreign language, thinking, hey, I've got the gift of tongues. This is going to be really easy for me. But he was disappointed when he found that he didn't feel like he really had gotten any more ability or gift than anybody else in the class. But he kind of explained that away by thinking, well, getting a good grade in high school really doesn't have much to do with the church. So, so maybe that's the reason. But then he was called to a foreign speaking mission. And this time he thought, wow, now my gift is really going to kick in. This is the work of the Lord. I'm going to be able to get the language very, very easily. But again, he was disappointed. He felt that the Lord helped him, but he didn't feel like he had any more ability than others to learn a foreign language. And so he was confused by that. He wondered why his gift didn't seem to be working. Or maybe he wasn't faithful enough. But then he came home from his mission, and, and in planning on a future career, he ended up being hired by the church to teach seminary and institute. And he quickly found that he had an incredible ability to teach the scriptures in a very effective and eloquent way. And so I'll tell you, my father is an amazing teacher. And he came to the realization that his manifestation of the gift of tongues didn't have anything to do with foreign languages. But it was the ability to speak beautifully and in an understandable way in his own language. That's, that's his manifestation of the gift of tongues. A, a different administration of it. I know of a young woman whose patriarchal blessing told her that she had the gift of healing. And since she couldn't give priesthood blessings, she felt that she should go into medicine as a career. But she soon found that she wasn't really interested in becoming a doctor. Her passion wasn't there. But she didn't want to neglect her spiritual gift. Well, all she really needed was a brief explanation of this principle, that there are many different ways in which the gifts are administered. One manifestation of the gift of healing is the ability to heal through priesthood blessings. Another would be to have a, the gift for, for healing people as a doctor or a nurse. I imagine Russell M. Nelson has that gift. But could there be any others? How about emotional healing? Spiritual healing? As soon as this was explained to her, she thought back on her life and reflected on the fact that people often came to her for help when they were struggling. And she was always able to give counsel and comfort to uh, make them feel better. That was her manifestation of the gift of healing. So after explaining that, or, or sometimes during that explanation, I'll open up one of the smaller gifts and display the even smaller gifts inside, perhaps labeled with some of the manifestations that we just mentioned here. Question number six. Are some gifts more important than others? You know, with that many possible gifts out there, there's a, there's a possible problem that might arise. As humans, we're very tempted to compare. And so, some people might start to feel that certain gifts are better than others. Perhaps somebody feels that the gift of healing is, is a more important gift than the gift of faith. They might feel that the gift of performing miracles is better to have than the gift of not passing judgment. 
So Paul wants to make something very clear to the members of Corinth about the various gifts that each of them possessed. So here you read verses 12 through 25 with that question in mind. And I'm not going to read the entire section here, but hopefully the message is clear. Paul compares the church to a body. And each of the different body parts represent the members of the church, each with their specific gift that they have to offer. Just like a body works together with many different parts and functions to live and move and accomplish things. Each part has their place and unique contribution. Now in the church, yes, some of the gifts may be more showy than others. Maybe we all, we all want to be the eye of the church. Perhaps somebody with the gift of leadership. But, but what good is an eye all by itself? A lone, solitary eyeball isn't going to do anybody any good. All of the parts of the body are necessary and perform vital functions together. It'd be foolish for a member of the church to feel like they're better than or more important than somebody else because of their particular gift. And if there's anybody in the church that doesn't feel that they're important or needed because they don't know as much or aren't as charismatic or knowledgeable as other people in the congregations, then they need to read this chapter. They're needed. There's something unique that they have to give that nobody else can. And if they pull away from the body, the whole congregation is going to suffer a loss. Something's going to be missing. Sometimes I like to use this example. Maybe somebody says, well, if the church is a body and each member of the church is a part of the body, then I must be the big toe of the church. And I might sit that person down and tell them about my younger brother who lost his big toe in a lawnmower incident. And he could tell you how significant it is to lose even that small part of your body makes a huge difference. And so do you. All gifts are needed. All members are needed. Question number seven. Can you have more than one gift? Chapter 12, verse 11. But all these worketh that one in the selfsame spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. So yes, you can have more than one. In fact, I imagine we all do. God's very gracious. He gives unto everyone severally as he will. And that leads very naturally into question number eight. Is it okay to ask for and receive other gifts? What if there's a gift that you feel that you really need, that you haven't been naturally gifted with? Is it okay to ask for those gifts? We know that we're not supposed to aspire to positions or callings within the church. But is it okay to aspire to spiritual gifts? Verse 31, But covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet shew I unto you a more excellent way. Also chapter 14, verse 1, Follow after charity, and desire spiritual gifts, but rather that ye may prophesy. So yes, it's okay to seek for more gifts. In fact, look at the word he uses to describe the desire. Covet. <laughs> Covet the best gifts. You don't have to just be satisfied with the ones that come naturally to you. I'll give you an example of this. I don't believe that I was born with the gift of teaching. I really don't. It's not like my, my father, who I feel is naturally gifted as a teacher. When I left for my mission, and since that day, I've really wanted to become a better, more effective teacher of the gospel. I coveted that gift. And so I've worked at it, and I've sought for it diligently in prayer. And I've learned skills and techniques and, and studied and practiced. And, and through my efforts and the grace of my Father in heaven, I feel that I have attained a measure of that gift. And we can all do this, no matter who we are. 
And as a teacher, perhaps at this point in your lesson, you could share a gift that you feel that you earnestly coveted and share how you feel your Heavenly Father has helped you to receive it. So yeah, it's okay to seek additional gifts. God encourages us to do that. It's the same message as the parable of the talents. We're meant to improve upon the God-given gifts that we've been given. Now finally, one more truth about spiritual gifts that we need to cover, which is going to make up the bulk of the message of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. There's one specific gift that we should all be seeking for. It's the nicest, most valuable, most elaborately wrapped gift of all. And here you could pull out of the big box a really nicely wrapped fancy package with ribbons and bows, and, and then you ask question number nine. What is the greatest of all the gifts that we can seek after in chapter 13? So I guess that kind of goes against the idea, you know, all gifts are important in the church. However, there is actually one gift that is the best, but it's a gift that we, that we all need to be seeking. In fact, we've got to have this gift or the rest of our gifts won't, won't really mean anything. It's, it's the gift that provides power and life and meaning to all of the other gifts. What is it? Charity. <laughs> charity is the greatest of all the gifts. What is charity? Best definition is in Moroni 741. It's the pure love of Christ. And, and I think that that can possibly be interpreted in three different ways. Right? That word of can mean a number of different things. One way to look at it is that it's the type of love that Jesus had for others that we need to have. We, we need to have that same kind of love for others too. So it's love like Christ. But you could look at it in another way as well. It could be the love that we have for Jesus. And if we have that love, it will cause us to act in certain ways. So it could be love for Christ. And it could also be interpreted as the love that he has for us. And recognizing his love for us will change us in our attitudes and behaviors. We'll act in certain ways because of his love for us. So it could also be love from Christ. Which is the correct interpretation? Is it love like Christ, love for Christ, or love from Christ? And I would answer, yes. <laughs> right? We don't have to choose. Uh, I think they're all correct and can give us insight and meaning. And with that understanding in hand, now we can dive into 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Which I feel, this is a chapter that, that represents one of the greatest literary masterpieces of Christian writing. It's, it's so deep. There's so much that could be said or learned from it. And so I found that as a teacher, sometimes it's counterproductive to try to lead your students through something like this, to try to force one specific direction on them. Maybe it's better to approach it very open-ended and allow them to bring what they see and what they feel into the discussion. So in a case like this, I might just do a, a favorites activity. What's your favorite verse or phrase in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and why? And then you just read it, right? Just let them experience the beauty of Paul's words and allow the Spirit to be the teacher this time. And, you know, I know that's great if you have a class with members that willingly participate, but maybe some of you... <laughs> are saying, uh, uh, but I have a class that doesn't really share much. What if they just sit there and stare at me? Well, maybe I'll, I'll give you a few ideas, some thoughts, some insights, some questions uh, that you can have up your sleeve just in case. So from verses 1 through 3, it says that all of the gifts mean nothing without charity, without love, without pure Christ-like love. They profit us not. And so you could ask, why do the other gifts mean nothing without charity? And I think that it's because the gospel is inherently 
outward focused, not inward. If I'm doing righteous things, if I'm, if I'm using my gifts that God has given me, but it's all self-serving, it's all about me, making me look good and feel better about myself, then it's not going to have power. I think, I think people are pretty good at sensing when our motivations are misplaced. If I teach with the intent to draw attention to myself, to have people leaving my class thinking, wow, that teacher is so amazing, and not, wow, the scriptures or the gospel of Jesus Christ are so amazing, then I'm probably going to fail as a teacher. They'll sense the duplicitousness and, and respond in kind. What I teach will be like sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. It's just going to be noise. If I serve without that love, my service is going to lack power. If I lead without love, my leadership will lack power. We've got to have the gift of charity matched up with each of our gifts. And verses 4 through 8, I think that when we say the word love, we often think about feelings. I need to feel a certain way about the people around me. But Paul's going to define charity much more precisely. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail, whether there be tongues, they shall cease, whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. Now, is that list focused more on feelings or actions? Now, the, these are actions. And that's important because charity is a matter of the will and, and action. That's why Paul doesn't give us a list of feelings, but a list of things that we can do and attributes that we can develop. And if somebody were to ask me, can you give me an example of what these qualities look like? I'd say, yeah, uh, the perfect example for each of these qualities is Jesus Christ himself. And in that light, you could read those verses something like this. And Christ suffered long and was kind and envied not. Christ vaunted not himself. Christ was not puffed up. He didn't behave himself unseemly. He sought not his own. And so on, etc., Therefore, when Paul asks us to seek to have the greatest of all gifts, the gift of charity, he's really asking us to seek to be like Christ. And what do you think the phrase, charity never faileth, means? Does that mean that charity always works? Maybe, in a way. Uh, I believe that approaching any situation with charity is going to yield something better than it would otherwise. And in that way, charity never faileth. But, but Christ was the embodiment of charity, and they crucified him. A parent may have all these qualities and love for a child, but, but that won't always change a heart. doesn't guarantee success. And I think that's important to understand, because if I feel that charity is always going to be successful, and I fail, then the only conclusion that I can come to is that I must not have had enough charity. And I think that could be discouraging. But instead of meaning that it's always successful, what if it means that charity will always be necessary? It's always going to be needed in mortality and throughout the eternities. There are other virtues or gifts of the Spirit that are, are not going to be needed in the next life. I think, I think that's what verses 8 through 10 mean. Uh, when we're standing in the very presence of God and the Savior, I imagine that faith and hope are going to take on a very different meaning. Faith is no longer believing in something that I can't see when I can see it right in front of me. I may no longer need hope for resurrection and exaltation when those blessings are granted to me. 
there won't really be any need for certain manifestations of the gift of tongues or the gift of healing or the gift of miracles when I'm living in a glorified eternal world. At least not in the same sense that they're used here. And could that be what this means? Maybe. Charity is something that we're going to always need to have with us. It's something that endures forever. Charity never faileth. If it's the character of Christ we're talking about, then possessing that pure love for God and my fellow man is always going to be needed because it will be who I am and what I have become in mortality. Love is infinite. Love is eternal. And is it any surprise that love is the basis of all Christian virtues? Jesus was the very embodiment of love. And if we wish to follow him, then we've got to develop it. So, if I were to just summarize the message of charity or pure love from 1 Corinthians 13, I might put it this way. Verses 1 through 3 and 13, the preeminence of love. Love is absolutely essential in discipleship. Verses 4 through 8, the nature of love. Love is action, it's service, it's outward focused, not self-focused. Verses 9 through 10, the endlessness of love. Love is something that is going to endure forever. It's infinite. Verse 11, the maturity of love. A disciple that possesses charity shows that they're no longer a child in the gospel. They've grown up. Charity is the mark of spiritual maturity. And then verse 12, the destiny of love. Love will eventually lead us to knowing as we are known. Seeing through a glass darkly here means looking through a veil. That's what glass means. It's, it's a veil. If I put a veil over your face, you're not going to be able to see things very clearly. But if I learn to love like Christ loved, one day I will pass through that veil. That, that veil will be removed from between me and God. And I will know them in the same way that they know me. That's the destiny of love. So, so there we go. Do you feel like you have a better understanding now of spiritual gifts? I really hope so. Paul's, Paul's very deep. <laughs> He's very thorough. And here you may want to just review the truths that we've just learned about spiritual gifts and display them in one place. And to liken the scriptures, we've got the final three questions on the study guide. Uh, and maybe you could have some of your students share their answers. So think of someone you love and admire in your life. What spiritual gift do you recognize in them, and how has it blessed you? How have your own God-given gifts blessed you and the people around you? And then finally, what gift of the Spirit would you most like to receive? And what are you willing to do to show that you're ready for that gift? And, and isn't our Heavenly Father amazing? I mean, he's the real Santa Claus. <laughs> he has endowed each of us with individualized gifts and abilities that only we can offer. Even though we may feel inadequate at times, even though we may feel envious of the gifts of others, there are certain matters and people that we are the best equipped to help. There are certain duties and labors that we are the most qualified and capable of performing. And as long as we seek to magnify and use those gifts with the pure love of Christ as our motive, as our fuel, then there is no end to the good that we can accomplish. Make no mistake about it. You are gifted. And you know what? I wasn't going to do this originally, but, but I can't help it. But uh, to, to at least throw out one quick final thought before we end. You could do an entire portion of a lesson on the verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, which says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. What's the message? 
there's always a way to escape from temptation. God would never put us into a hopeless situation where we were destined to sin. God has provided us with escape routes, a way out. Because God giveth no commandments unto the children of men, save he shall prepare a way for them that they may accomplish the thing which he commandeth them. Uh, an activity that you could do to introduce this would be to see who can escape from a maze the quickest. Just do that as a handout. I'll make this available to you if you like. But then you could simply ask your students what some of their favorite escape routes are from temptation. What things have helped them in the past to resist temptation, whatever it is. And you could just make a big list of those ideas and techniques on the board. Imagine there'd be things like praying for help, talking to a bishop, singing a hymn, using the Alma 1123 method that we talked about last time, fleeing the temptation, quoting a favorite scripture, keeping a picture of Christ on your wall or as the, the backdrop to your cell phone. Look at the eternal perspective, the long-term effect on your actions versus what your natural man desires in the short term, etc., etc. <laughs> Just brainstorm those ideas and then your students can walk away with the whole list of possible escape routes to choose from and to help them in their personal temptations. That, that's just one way that you could approach teaching that verse that I found to be effective. And, and that will conclude our study for this week. Uh, teachers, if you're interested in using the PowerPoint slides, the handouts that I make, the, the lesson plans I put together, which is basically just the, the script of these videos, just go to teachingwithpower.com and you'll find links to those resources. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. And I invite you to join me again next week as we conclude our study of 1 Corinthians. Now get out there and teach with power.